Um, now, as we get into today, today's kind of its own thing. It's not a series, and, and I just wanted to uh, share with you this, this issue that I think is such a big thing if we let it be. And uh, I kind of learned about it myself. Uh, when I first came to Loami, a group of us took a mission trip to Mexico, Juarez, Mexico, and we built a house for a family that I think they had lost theirs in a flood, and we went with a, an organization called Casas por Cristo, you know, Houses for Christ, and, and that's what they did. They go into these impoverished places where people either don't have homes or have lost their homes, and they build, um, I, calling it a house is, is generous by our, our standards. I'm not sure my little tiny Ford Focus could have been parked into it if it was totally opened up on one end, you know, like a garage. Um, but it was interesting when we get there because we were in this one particular neighborhood and they had us staying in this thing that, for lack of a better word, it was a compound. And I mean that in the sense like, you know, huge, giant concrete walls on all sides of us. Uh, there was barbed wire at the top of it. None of us had ever stayed in a place like that. It was, it was safe, but it just kind of gave you that feeling of, are, are we safe? You know, it kind of was confusing and, and we it got locked up at night real tight, and then during the day, we could kind of open the doors and wander out into the neighborhood, and um, we had a bunch of high school students that go, uh, go with us, and they were out in these streets, and these little kids would come out during the day, and they were, you know, playing with a almost all the way filled up soccer ball, and most of the kids didn't have shoes, and it was the first time a lot of us had, had seen something that extreme. I mean, we talk about uh, poverty in, in, in our area, and there, it does exist, but this was an extreme level of poverty in every direction that you looked that most of us had never seen before. And we had poverty defined for us. And for a lot of people that went on that trip, it messed us up. Because it's like, I, people live like this? Like, I have lots of shoes to wear, and they don't have any shoes to wear. And, you know, I sometimes forget to lock my door at night, and everything turns out okay. And, like, we get into this compound, and we're, like, sliding the big gate shut, you know. It's like it just it felt so surreal. Like, I have a home with all these rooms and running water, and we're building a house for this guy and this family, and they're incredibly grateful for this thing I wouldn't even park my car in. And it was just this incredible, eye-opening, shocking experience for a lot of us. And... Maybe you've had a situation similar to that, not so much that you went somewhere and saw some, like, like a poverty situation on a mission trip, but maybe you saw something, learned something, experienced something that just bothered you. Like it, it was a burden on your heart. It really bugged you, and it, and it almost hurt to realize that people live like this. This is how some people experience life every single day. And it's... The way I would have described it was when I got home, I started to feel guilty for all the stuff I had. I started to feel guilty when I went to get a drink of water. I felt guilty every time I flushed the toilet. I felt guilty taking a shower. You know, you start to feel bad about all these things. And, and, and you'd almost like to forget that you even went to a certain extent because it, it's painful to even think back on it, and it hurts your heart a little bit to think back on it. But forgetting that feels wrong because it's like I can't forget that. Because I can't, I can't abandon that situation. I almost feel like I need to do something. I feel like I can't just sit still and let nothing 
nothing and, and, and do nothing to help those particular people. And in fact, that's kind of how it was. A lot of the kids, especially the high schoolers when they got back, they were like, what can we do for all those kids that we you know, met when we were down there? How can we help them? They wanted to do something. They couldn't just go on that trip and then leave the trip when they got home. They couldn't get over it. And if you've ever had an experience like this, um, it's, it's not unique to you. In fact, it's a very common thing that a lot of people go through. And, and you don't have to go to another country to see it. You can see things like that that shock you and bother you right here in our own backyard. It's a, it's a biblical thing. We have a great example of that. I think the best example of it in Scripture uh, comes in the book of Nehemiah. Um, you don't feel like you have to turn there. I'm just going to give you the Cliff Notes version of this because I want you to understand um, that this is, not, this is something that happened to people in Scripture. Um, the, the Old Testament book of Nehemiah, it took place, and there's a little bit of history here that makes it all make sense. So if you don't like history not your day, enjoy. Uh, but if there's a little bit of history here. And so what happened was, at a certain point in Israel's history as a nation, they got exiled, which meant two bigger and stronger nations came in, and they defeated them in battle. They burned a lot of their cities, killed a lot of their people, and then they went through the cities picking out the best and the brightest and the smartest people in Israel, and they captured them and took them back to their other nations because they thought, why not take the smart people back? The smart people are going to make our place better. And then after about 70 or so years, the people that were captured got to go home. All the people that were of um, Israelite descent got to, got to be released and go home. Now, after 70 years, you got to think, there's like a generation or two of people, that, of Israelites, that have been born, that have never set foot in Israel, that have never seen Jerusalem, never seen the city of their homeland, but they knew where they were from. And Nehemiah was one of those people. He'd never been to his homeland, but he knew a lot about it, and he cared a lot about it. And so after everybody's let go, Nehemiah chose to stay living in this other nation because, again, that had always been his home. You know, that's where he had always been. And a couple of people who had been to Israel came back, and he said, what's it like? What's it like in Israel? And they said, it's not great. And they, he specifically asked about the capital city of Jerusalem, and they said, Jerusalem, it's still destroyed. Like, it's never been fully rebuilt. In fact, he says, the city doesn't even have a wall around it anymore. It's just, it's destroyed. All the gates are still burned. There's still char marks there. It's, it's never been rebuilt to its former glory. And the people are in constant danger. Because a city in the ancient world without a wall meant people could come in and rob you. It meant people could come in and take your kids, kill your family. There was no safety. There was always danger. A city couldn't build up any amount of wealth to even kind of get their feet going, to kind of rebuild things. It was just... Uh, it was almost like they were just a, an embarrassment to their, that for, of a capital city in a sense. Not that we understand that here in Springfield, Illinois, right? Um, I'm gonna, some politician's going to put a hit out on me. I hope not, but maybe. And so, so when Nehemiah, though, when he hears that Jerusalem has never been rebuilt, when, it's, when he hears that it's never been um, brought back to safety, he, he, he gets upset because those are his relatives, those are his ancestors, and he, he hates that people that, that are his family, in his family tree, are still in that kind of situation. And Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 4, he says, As soon as I heard these words, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then he got up, and long story short, he goes back to Jerusalem, and he inspires the people of that city to rebuild that wall, reinstall re, uh, the gates in really not a lot of time, considering they'd been burned up and without a wall there for probably close to 100 years. And he goes, it shows up, and boom, there's a wall in no time. And it's like, now why, 
why all of a sudden, after 100 years of nobody, able, nobody being able to do anything, was he able to come in and, boom, rally the troops and get something done? Well, the reason is because burden inspires action. Burden inspires action. When you have your heart broken for something that just should not be, something that you think, I can't sit still while that is a reality, it drives you forward to do something, to come up with some kind of a solution. And you know, the way we, we are taught to think in America is that all pain is bad. All heartache is bad. We like to forget that the new, those stories on the news of, of people getting slaughtered on the other side of the world. We turn the channel. We like to forget. We turn it off and go back to our merry day. We hear stories of missionaries coming from the other side of the world and hearing about their entire churches being burned down with people inside, and we just forget about that because that's painful and that's uncomfortable, and I don't like it interrupting my nice, neat little life. And so we try to block out things like that. But if we can learn anything from the story of Nehemiah, it's that sometimes a burden in your heart is a good thing. Sometimes feeling that little bit of unrest inside of you is a good thing because burden inspires action. And some of the things in my life that I have been, that I've worked toward the most consistently, let me say it that way, were inspired because my heart was messed up, it was broken, it was shattered for something, and I just couldn't shake it. And so I'm just going to give you a, a heads up today. I want to share with you a burden, and I hope you catch it. Like, I'll stay out of church, and I'll stay in my office or something and not shake hands if I got a cold, but if there's something I can share with you, I hope it's a burden today. So if you walk out of here feeling uncomfortable, just a heads up, I did my job, and so I want you to feel that way. So if, so if you're a believer here this morning and you feel uncomfortable, let me just say, good, okay? If you're new or not a Christian, let me say, um, some of this might be a little heavy and I don't want to scare you off or freak you out, but let me just say, you're going to learn a little bit about what we believe and why Christians are oftentimes so passionate about what we believe and what we do. And so the thing I want to share with you this morning is that the burden I want to give you, excuse me, is that we should feel a deep sense of responsibility to share the gospel with our world. Now, you, you've probably heard sermons on evangelism and sharing your faith and all that stuff, and I, I get that, and, and that's okay, and I've preached a lot of them, and I've thought about it a lot, but, but I don't know if it ever truly becomes something you will do until you feel a burden. And so, uh, that's one of the reasons why in our mission statement at Loemi Christian Church, it's, we, we exist to connect people to Jesus, grow them in Jesus, and impact the world for Jesus. That connect part is helping people find salvation in Christ, having their sins removed and their path to heaven paved by Jesus. If we are not doing that, then we might as well not be doing anything, because that is the first step of helping our world, of saving our world. And so, one of the things that keeps me coming to work every day that burdens my heart is knowing that there is a world of people out there who need Christ and don't know him. And, and, and the, re the thing that turns that into a burden, okay, rather than just a, oh, there's a lot of people who don't know Jesus. There's Christians and non-Christians, and if we can make more Christians, then yay. The thing that turns it more from a, a just a nonchalant little truth to a burden is when you connect the idea of people not having Christ to one very powerful and very obvious biblical truth that we don't like to talk about, hell. But everywhere you look in Scripture, it's a reality. Some people try to erase it and ignore it and say, hell's not really a thing, Jesus was just wrong or kidding around, and maybe he didn't really say that or mean what we think he said. But man, when you look even at the words of Jesus, you get such a strong picture that hell is a real thing. It is a place of conscious, eternal torment. Conscious, meaning you know 
your, what's going on. You know that you deserve to be there. You know that you are suffering for your sin. Eternal meaning unending, and you know that it's unending. You know there's no relief coming. Torment, absolute agonizing pain. To show you that Jesus was talking about this, in Matthew chapter 13, verses 41 and 42, Jesus said, The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping and gnashing of teeth is a common term of anguish, a common response to pain and agony. So hell is a real place. Jesus talked about it on more than one occasion. And he says, all causes of sin go to hell. All people who choose sin over him go there. Now, uh, another scary truth and depressing truth is found in Romans 3.23, which says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all missed God's glorious standard of righteousness, meaning we've all committed sin. Now, if everybody who sins goes to hell and everybody's a sinner, that's not a great place to be. But the sermon doesn't end there. In fact, you'll notice this verse doesn't end with a period, but a comma. So lucky for us, there's a Romans 3.24. So Romans 3.23, one more time, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, excuse me, and are justified by His grace as a gift. We are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, uh, justified means that our criminal record of sin is wiped away. Jesus takes all of the wrong things that we have done, and he took the punishment for it on the cross so that we no longer have to suffer the punishment of hell. The punishment has been given. The, the, gift of, of, or the, the list of wrongs is wiped away. He has given us a, a life ahead beyond our sin that doesn't lead to hell, and it calls that a, a gift of grace, a gift of grace. One way to think of justified is it's just, if, just as if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. And so Jesus is the only way forward out of hell for a world of sinners, of which I am included. Jesus is the only way past hell and on to heaven. In fact, he says that in John 14, 6. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He doesn't say, I am a way to heaven. I am one way to heaven. I am one path of many to salvation. He says, I am the way. And no one, not a single soul, can come to the Father, come to salvation in heaven, except apart from me. And all of that is really depressing, right? Aren't you so pumped that you came to church today? But, but that, that's the truth that is taught over and over and over again in Scripture. Those aren't things that we can ignore. No matter how much our American sensibility to erase uncomfortableness and erase pain wants us to, we, we, we can't ignore what is true and what is real. And so what bothers me and drives me to work again day in, day out, what burdens me to keep doing what I'm doing is the fact that there is a world full of people that are going to be in hell without Jesus. If nothing changes, an entire entire communities of people will go to hell if they don't know Jesus. There are people in our families, in our friend circles, there are people that we encounter at work, at the grocery store, at the bank, people that we see every single day, people that we like, people that we love, people that we are friendly to, that if nothing changes for them, they will go to hell. But the good news is this, they don't have to. They don't have to. 
Because of what Jesus did on the cross. That's why we call it good news. Because hell is obviously bad news. I can tell by the stone faces in the room that you're not loving the direction of the sermon. I know, I know you understand bad news, right? But Jesus is the good news. There are ways out of that reality. That he didn't just condemn us to that, but he rescued us from it. And it's that, it's that story, it's that good news of Christ that keeps me going forward. And I want it to bother you so that it keeps you moving forward. And it makes you want to have as many people that you know and love in heaven by your side when you get there as possible. And the sad reality is, though, for a lot of people, this life with its mix of joys and sorrows and ups and downs and highlights and agonies, this is as close to heaven as a lot of people will ever get. And that's, that stinks. That, I, that just, I mean, does. it's just awful. Because there's days this life is so bad, I'm, I'm praying for heaven. There's, the, there's things I've seen in your lives as a minister that I thought, man, I get why some people really want Jesus to come back and put an end to all this because this is just unbearable agony. And to think that this is as close to heaven as somebody gets, that's not, we shouldn't be okay with that, you know? And so, if you're sitting there thinking to yourself, Anthony, this is so depressing, yeah, it is. That's the burden part. That's the thing that we should feel. That's the thing that should bother us. The thing that we shouldn't be able to just set off to the side when we leave church and the sermon's over and go back to how everything was. And so I hope it bothers you. I hope it disturbs you. I hope it nudges you to do something different than what you've always done before. Because let me just say this. Christians are awful at sharing our faith. Awful. We're, we're terrible at it. I think I saw, uh, I heard a statistic this week um, that a little under, I think it's a little under, 2% of Christians even invite somebody to church in a given year Amer- in America. Just two out of every 100 Christians will even attempt to invite somebody. That's not even bringing somebody to church. That's not having a, a gospel-driven conversation with somebody. That's just a simple, hey, would you like to come to church with me? I think you would like it. Only two out of every 100 Christians in our nation ever get the guts up to even do that. That's a pretty sad statistic when you look at the fact that one of the last things Jesus said before he left the world and put things into the church's hands was go and make disciples. Go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey every command that I have given you. Go! In fact, a better translation would be, as you are going... Through your life, through your day, through your business, as you're going, make disciples along the way. Meaning that as we live life, we should just be grabbing people along the way and say, here, let's go see Jesus. You know, we should just be grabbing coworkers and family and friends and the lady at the bank and the, that cashier at the grocery store. As we're going through our life, we should just be grabbing people to, to walk towards Jesus with us. It should be natural, a thing that we just do, not a thing that we largely ignore. And so I'm going to give us two, what I think are two very unpleasant perspectives that most American Christians have that keep us from sharing our faith. Here's the first one. Selfish apathy. Selfish apathy. Selfish apathy is basically, I know people are going to hell, because a lot of us, we've heard these sermons before. We know it's true. We know hell's reality. We know without Christ, people go there, and we still say nothing. Selfish apathy, apathy says, you know, I'd rather not make an awkward conversation. I'd rather not, you know, feel the rejection if somebody says no. I'd rather not, you know, derail my day. I had a plan. I was going to go home, have a nice dinner, relax on the couch. And if I say something, it might lead to something, and then I have to talk to them, and then, uh, I just, you know, I'd just rather stick with my own path for my day. 
And so we, we will focus on ourselves to the point where we honestly aren't really all that concerned or we're not thinking about the people that might be going to hell because we don't want to disrupt our nice, neat little lives. And so we keep Jesus to ourselves. The second one, and this one really bothers me, and let me just say this up front, I, am, I do both of these. I'm both of these. These aren't, these aren't you terrible Christians. These are, man, I, if I'm pointing one at you, I got, I got all these other fingers pointing back at me, you know, okay? So the second one, though, is self or arrogant satisfaction. And you will see Christians who, it's not just that they have no compassion for the world that's going on a path to hell. They're almost glad about it. You know, they see people doing sinful things. They see people living contrary to God's commands, and, and because they're living more in line with what God wants, they think, well, they're evil and awful. They deserve hell, and they're almost glad. They don't want, we don't want those sinners in here because those sinners will mess up our church. So we want those sinners out there, and we can scoff at them, and we can go, ugh, those people over there, and we, we vilify them, and we almost get glad that they're going to hell because we feel good that we're the good, righteous people. And it's, it's, it's embarrassing that we would ever get to that point because I'll tell you why. The reason why we get to arrogant satisfaction is, is we forget that at one point in time, when we found Jesus, we were nothing but dirty, rotten, helpless sinners. I was a dumb high school kid when Jesus finally got a hold of me. And I continue to do dumb long after Jesus found me. I still have, I'm still really good at it from time to time. I'm trying, right? But what happens is when Jesus found you, you were a sinner. And the reason you gave your life to him because you thought, if I don't have Jesus, I'm going to hell because I'm a sinner. And then Jesus grabs you, and he gives you the strength to start cleaning your life up. And then five years go by, ten years go by, twenty years, thirty years go by, and you've got to where you live more like Jesus than you ever have before. And now you look at people who, used to, who are like you used to be, and you think, what awful, horrible sinners. Because you've forgotten that you used to be just like them. And in fact, you're still just like them, because you're still a sinner in the eyes of God. And when we forget that we used to be sinners, that we're, we're all here not by our merit, not because we're good people. We're not here because we earned our way in. We're not here because we're, we have the right perspective, the right political views or anything like that. We are here because we were a mess, and God loved us too much to leave us that way. And there's a world full of people that are in that same boat. And as I look at how we live our lives, it seems like we don't care. And that bothers me, and I hope it bothers you. Because if there's two things that should drive us to share our faith, it's one, the burden of knowing that people around us that we see every single day are going to hell. And secondly, it should be the sheer gratitude that Jesus loved me enough to save me. I'm not here, I'm not a pastor. But oh my gosh, there's somebody, you know, like often I sit in my office and go, how can I have the right to stand up and preach the gospel? How did, how did God ever get me here? I don't sit in my office and go, boy, I'm such a good person. I earned the right to be a minister. I'm so holy and better than everybody else. That's not how it is. I'm... I'm a sinner and I'm a mess and God has picked me up and given me a better way of life. And he's, he, and he's done that to many of you. And he can do that to the world, all the people out there, if we would just take this seriously. And too often, we don't. We should be grateful. Now, the point of this message is not to guilt you into sharing your faith this week or inviting someone to church. Guilt is not the feeling that I'm going for here. Guilt and a holy burden are different. Guilt is I'm doing it because someone called me out on it. A holy burden is me doing it because it's true and it shouldn't be. A holy burden is people are going to hell and, and they shouldn't. They don't have to. 
guilt is, oh man, Anthony might say something to me next week or might call me out or this sermon kind of made me feel bad, so I guess I should. Uh, guilt, guilt will pass. Guilt you can block out of your head. We do it all the time. But a holy burden sticks in your heart and it makes your life go to a different direction, a different path. And so I really am hoping for the holy burden this morning. I hope you can catch that. Because again, the people that you know, the people that you love that are going to hell, they don't have to. And the reason they don't have to is because you are in their life. And you know the one who saves. You know the one who redeems. You know the one who turns sinners into preachers. You know the one who turns messes into miracles. You know that Jesus, and you can tell them about him. They don't have to go to hell because you are in their life. And do not neglect that truth. Don't say, oh, I could never. No, Jesus didn't intend me to. No, surely he meant someone else to. That's not how it works. He told his disciples, go and make more disciples. Share your faith with others. And so if I have done anything to give you a little bit of a burden, anything to give you a little bit of a burden in my time here this morning, let me give you one simple action step to maybe do something because burden inspires action. Um, I would like to encourage you to, in the next month, at some point, invite someone to Easter. And that sounds silly, but we're not trying to pack our pews. That's not the point here. The reason is that Easter is one of the very few days of the year when people are more likely to respond to an invitation. It's an opportunity we have to bring people here and tell them about Jesus. And I will be preaching about Jesus and the forgiveness he offers to people on Easter. It will be a message geared for those people who are going to hell and don't have to. And I want them to be here. Because if you're here and you're a Christian, all it's going to be a reminder. Not good, brand new news, not good brand new news. And that's what it's designed to be. And so, um, if I can get a couple helpers maybe. Ben, you're not doing anything important. Yeah, Ben's, Ben's, you're not doing anything important. Here we have some invite cards, and they're very simple. One side, the, uh, the white, si white and green side. Yeah, go for it. If there's none left, that's good. <laughs> the white and green side has Easter times. The black and green side has our normal church times. So we can invite them to Easter and say, why don't you join us any other time we're meeting, or if they can't make it on Easter. By the way, that's what Ben and I do any time through the week. It's like, hey, I need your help. You're not doing anything important. Come help me. Like, that's kinda, so that was something we see all the time, not something horribly rude. It's kind of rude. All right, it's fine. We're friends. It's fine. We can, we've earned it right. And so, but, here's, but, but here, this is just a tool to help, a tool to uh, remind you that you have this amazing power to help people and lead people. Now, as those are getting passed out, I want to share with you a story that I heard that I thought was just, it really... It really shocked me when I heard this story. It's a story by um, Penn Gillette of Penn and Teller, you know, the magicians, illusionists, or whatever they call themselves. Penn's the big, giant, tall one that talks. Teller never says a word. He tells a story about one time they were doing a show. I want to say it was in Vegas, maybe? And after the show, this guy comes up to him and says, hey, can I just talk to you for a minute? And he hands him a Bible. And he says, here is a Bible, and I just, and he so I just want to tell you about Jesus. And he spends a few minutes telling Penn Jillette about Jesus. And, and if you don't know anything about Penn Jillette, Penn Jillette is a very outspoken atheist. Very, very devout in his atheism, for sure. He's a, he seems to be like a, a decently nice and respectful guy, but he's very much an atheist and will tell anyone who, know, who can hear that. But he says this guy comes up and he's very nice and very pleasant, explains Christ to him and why we need Christ. He says, and inside the Bible I've taped a sheet of all my phone numbers. If you ever want to talk more about this, 
please contact me anytime. And, and Pendulette said, I had so much respect for that guy. He said, I'll tell you who I have no respect for. Christians who don't evangelize. He said, I'll tell you why. Because and he, he's a smart guy and he knows what we believe. He said, if you believe that there's a hell and that I'm going there, if not for this Jesus that you guys worship, he said, how much do you have to hate me to know that I'm going to hell, to suffer eternal torment forever? How much do you have to hate me to know that that's where I'm going and to say nothing? And I thought, if that's what an atheist, that's the atheist perspective on it. An atheist thinks Christians should share their faith. Then maybe we should do that, you know? And I could not shake those words. I watched, the, I think you can even watch that video on YouTube. I watched it, I don't know how many times. Just, I was so fascinated by him just saying, I have no respect for Christians who don't share their faith because what a hateful way to live your life if you think people are going to hell and you don't have the courage to, to chime up and say something. And so that kind of frustrates me when we have Christians who will be outspoken about anything and everything. We are outspoken about CrossFit, our diets, political issues, that thing that person said to you, then can you believe it? We're outspoken about every single thing that we feel strongly about except Jesus. And I don't want us to be a part of that 98% of people who are okay with saying nothing. We have a burden of sharing Jesus with the world, and we can't shake that. We shouldn't shake that. It's wrong of us to shake that. It is our job to connect people to the sal salvation that Christ offers us and them. So let's not waste a single opportunity to do that. Let's pray. Father, we have a powerful calling. And it's not just to tap into this faith so that we can have salvation. It's not just this thing that we were called to consume and be satisfied that we found it. That's enough. It's not enough. Because you have given us something so good a salvation so amazing, a future so hopeful that we should be unable to contain it in our own lives. We should not be able to do anything but share it with the world of people. Whether those people are strangers, whether those people are family members, whether those are friends, whether it's a chance encounter with someone at a coffee shop who looks mildly upset and is just willing to talk. Those are encounters that you put together, that you ordain so that your gospel can reach more people and save more people. And so I pray that we would not shake this responsibility. We would not neglect this opportunity, but that we would understand the power that you have given us the power of the simple good news of Jesus. And so I pray that we would take this responsibility sincere, uh, seriously. I pray that we would share your faith sincerely with those who need to hear it. We would do so kindly and tactfully, that we would be gentle and, and encouraging as we tell people about Jesus. And let us not forget that every one of us in this room used to be a hell-bound sinner, and now you call us a heaven-bound saint. Not by our grace, not by our mercy, not by our ability, but simply because Jesus cleaned us up when we needed it. Thank you for tough lessons. Thank you for holy burdens. I pray that we don't, uh, we don't pass it up, and I pray that this burden inspires us to action. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.